Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm John Sorensen, filling in for Andrew Walworth. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's presidency. Much feels reminiscent of a year ago. COVID cases and hospitalizations are surging across the country, and the Congress remains as closely divided as ever, stalling large portions of Biden's ambitious agenda. But much has changed, and all of it arguably in the wrong direction for the president. Inflation continues to climb, and Biden's approval ratings continue to fall. On Wednesday, the president held a nearly two-hour press conference, only the second of his administration, and attempted to address nearly all of the major issues on the table, from the COVID response, the Senate battle over voting rights, the tense standoff with Russia over Ukraine, and the possibility of breaking up the Build Back Better bill into smaller chunks in order to get something through the Senate before the midterms. Joining me to discuss all of this are my colleagues from Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, co-founder and president, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and John Delavolpe, Director of Polling at Harvard University's Institute of Politics and Real Clear Opinion Research, and author of a new book just released, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Tom, let's start with Biden's marathon press conference on Wednesday. Uh, Biden, who is a self-described gaffe machine, often commented on himself as he was speaking, saying things like, well, I shouldn't say anymore. Uh, Already supporters and opponents are are spinning it as either an impressive display of stamina or proof of senility. Uh, First, did you last through the whole thing? And two, what was your impression? I did last through the whole thing. Um, My impression was that... Well, a couple of takeaways. Number one, this was billed as sort of a reboot um, <clears throat> after a year, a rough year for the administration. But one of the first things that the president said was that, you know, they were going to stay on track, that that his, you know, they felt like they were doing the right things. He acknowledged that there was frustration in the country over COVID, over inflation, but he didn't really offer any change in course at all. Um, at the end of the press conference, if you managed to stick around about an hour and a half into it, he was asked by Jeff Zeleny of CNN what he might do differently in the coming year. And he said, I've got three, <laughs> I've got three things I'm going to do differently. And I thought to myself, shouldn't he have said this at the beginning? Uh, but the three things he said he would do differently is he was going to get out of Washington and travel more and try and inform people about what Democrats have done. Uh, that he would seek advice from outside experts more and and be uh, more of a listener and also basically campaign for Democrats. <clears throat> um, but again, I don't know that that what we saw yesterday represented any real change in course, tactics, strategy from the White House. So that was number one. Uh, the other takeaway, obviously, and this is what everyone's been talking about, is, you know, a lot of what he said, uh, <laughs> the White House went back and cleaned up and contradicted. I mean, he said two things of enormous consequence. Number one, he said that, you know, basically a minor incursion by Putin into Ukraine would be something that they would have to, you know, talk about and argue about what to do. Um, That set off alarm alarm bells all over Washington, all over the world, actually, including the leaders of Ukraine. And Biden eventually came out, what was it, yesterday, I think on Thursday, the following day, and read a script saying that any incursion across the border would be considered an invasion. So um, he had to walk that one back. And the other piece was this idea that um, where he questioned the legitimacy of the 2022 elections. And that was 
a question that he got, uh, you know, fairly early in the press conference and then was followed up by our very own Phil Wegman, who Biden then promptly yelled at uh, <laughs> and argued that he did not, in fact, I mean, he initially refused to say that the elections in November would be free and fair. Phil gave him a chance to clarify that. Um, and he basically said the same thing. He said they could easily be illegitimate. Um, and that was something that Jen Psaki was asked about the next day on Fox News and at the White House press briefing. And eventually she said, no, the president, yes, the president believes the elections will be legitimate. No, he does not believe um, that failure to pass his, uh, any of the Democrats voting rights bills that are currently uh, went went down in Congress, that those would somehow uh, delegitimize the election. So the two biggest things that he said during that press conference that made a lot of news were he the White House basically had to go back in and walk those back and change his positions and you know try and spin those and and make it as if he didn't say what he actually said and I think that's that's kind of a problem. Carl, you've covered Biden for a long time. This was only his second solo press conference as president. It seemed like he was trying to make up for quantity with duration. But uh, how did this performance rank on the Biden curve for you? Well, in my uh, morning newsletter, I gave, what do the British call it, a left-handed compliment, a, a backhanded defense of him. I said, you know, these people are saying that Joe Biden, who's going to be 80 by the end of this year, is too old to be president, and he showed it. Um, that, to me, is somewhat missing the point. I, I first covered Joe Biden in 1987, and he said all manner of stupid things then, um, including... And he even said, I said some stupid things and I'll do it again. And he did it again. And he's been doing it again. And he did it last. He did it earlier this week. I, so, look, he's going to he's going to stumble. He's not always been the the guy quickest on his feet. He may not even be a very deep thinker. But having said that, there were I was struck by two things, John, and I, I Tom mentioned them both. But what were the two craziest things Donald Trump did? As president, but one of them that bothered people from the very beginning and led to this, this strange call with Ukraine and this impeachment, he played footsies with the Russians in a way that no American president has ever done since the advent of the Cold War, and he he seemed to take Russia's side in its long-standing historic dispute with Ukraine, which is not where Americans have ever been, and never explained it, never even bothered to explain it, and 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 and. Biden sort of Biden sort of picked up where Trump left off with that odd statement about uh, the incursion. And the other thing, the, the, the thing Trump did even before he was president in September uh, of 2016, he's asked, I think it was Chris Wallace who asked him, you guys remember, will you abide by the election? Uh, he basically said, well, if it goes my way, I'll abide by it. He's never gotten past that. He won the election, so he didn't have to challenge it. Uh, the Democrats turned out to be the ones who didn't accept it, really. And then, and as far as I know, to this day, uh, Donald Trump is still contesting uh, the election of a year ago. Tom went down to Mar-a-Lago. We mentioned this on the show last week and interviewed him. And when Tom came back, he, he said, is there anything you want to know? I said, there's one thing I want to know. Does Trump really believe these things he's been saying about the election? And Trump's, And Tom's impression was, yes, he does. So here you had Biden imitating the worst of Donald Trump. And it just wasn't, it wasn't very reassuring, uh, speaking as an, an independent and non-aligned person. 
John Delavolpe, I want to get to your new book fight in a moment. But first, it, it seemed like Biden was trying to argue his way out of his poll numbers. The The Washington Post described it as a, polit- a politician who doesn't doubt the strength of his persuasive powers kept trying to explain himself to the growing number of Americans who disapprove of him. Do you see Biden's numbers being moved at all by this performance on Wednesday? I don't think the average American, John, is thinking about the news conference today. It was an event that happened a couple of days ago. They might have walked by a TV when it was on or picked it up in the newspaper or something. But what Americans, I think, are really looking for is a new relationship uh, with their president, a new relationship with Washington, D.C., and where they're in a cadence of getting regular feedback about the issues that they care about. They don't, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, this comment or that comment, did he misspeak, did he not misspeak? What Americans are asking for, I think, is what's the agenda? How much progress are we making? If I need to check in on some things, where can I go? And is it something that I don't have to worry about, like all the other stressors in my life? That's what I think Americans are asking for. I think this press conference was as much about inside the beltway, improving his stamina and his ability to uh, to speak and to answer questions for a couple of hours. But I suspect that what Tom said, which the president, I guess, didn't say until the last 25% or so of the conference, it's going to see, uh, I think it's going to uh, be a preview of what we can expect with increasing numbers of town hall meetings and campaigning and, and, and surrounding himself with with other experts. So it's a reset, a transition. I don't think there's any one thing that's going to influence opinion so, so much, especially based upon the hyper-partisanship that we're seeing. Isn't one of the problems that Biden is is facing is that he seems to be, and his administration seems to be out of sync with the priorities of the American people. I mean, this, this there was a CBS News poll that came out last week that showed you know, they're concerned about inflation, very concerned about inflation. And Biden, you know, I think almost two thirds said that he was, you know, not uh, paying enough attention to or or any attention to the issues that they care about. And I mean, even if you believe and you argue and, and a lot of people do that the president has no control over inflation or very, very, very little. Um it's a perception issue, right? They're not they're not treating it with the same urgency that the American people want him to treat it with. Whether it's appointing an inflation czar or you know something. Um, now he did speak about it. Let's try raging price controls, Tom. That worked really well. <laughs> right. I mean, he did speak about it at the press conference, but again, you know, a couple lines in a press conference when the enormous amount of of effort and energy the administration has been expending over the last two and a half weeks have been around January 6th and voting rights and all that. That's not what the American people care about in their day-to-day lives. And so, you know, they need to rect- they need to realign their priorities with where the American people are. I don't disagree that, Tom, that inflation is something that is of, of deep, deep concern without question. And I think that, I think the Again, I didn't watch all the press conference. I think that there needs to be clear signals at every level of government that it is one of the very most important priorities. I think sometimes it can can get um, lost within the broader discussion of 
COVID vaccines and supply chains and the stock market and joblessness, et cetera. But I don't disagree at all that um, there should be a place where Americans can check in on a regular basis to see how their government's performing, how their what their priorities are, what the progress is, how we're doing on on uh, on unemployment, how we're doing on inflation, and all those other factors that really matter. That really matter. I talk so much about in my focus groups. I start asking people what you do for work. You know, I had to extend that time period from ten minutes to twenty minutes because. Most people are doing two or three other jobs, you know, the side hustles just to keep a roof over their heads, you know, and to, to try and make ends meet. So it's clear that economic anxiety is uh, is still very much uh, a, a part of, uh, of our politics and our, our society today. Is that kind of Clintonian, I feel your, feel your pain moment even possible these days? I mean, in terms of how, how fractured people are, I, I don't know that there anybody's going to be listening to that a and 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 b I, I think even for the president's supporters you know part of uh the the attraction during the campaign was the idea of having a having a president that you could tune out and not actually be uh enraged by everything that happened on a on a you know every twitter post well john you know trump trump well donald trump never really went for empathy. It's not his, it's not his default emotion. It doesn't come naturally to him. He didn't really see the utility of it. I don't think Biden does. And what's, what's been missing from the, from the white house that some of us expected was that this would come through. He's always positioned himself as a, as a working class guy and a spokesman of the working class. And, you know, you say, well, he's, he's never, you know, been in the private sector, but that doesn't matter. You know, Bruce Springsteen is going to, on his way to being a billionaire, but he's still got some, you know, the great greatest poems and songs about working people in the American canon, one end. But but Biden hasn't done that. His party's been taken, it, it, the impression one gets is that the Democratic Party has been taken hostage by the uh, the identity politics uh, wing of its, of its faction and that Biden isn't who he said he was. So, you know, feel your pain is is now a cliche, but I, there there a, a president ought to be able to give a speech. Um, Trump didn't do this, but I don't like I said. I'm surprised Biden's emulating Trump and say, "Listen, inflation's a problem. Here's what we think are the causes. Here's what here's what we're going to try and do." Um, I agree with Tom that I don't think a president directly you know causes inflation, but in this case, Henry Olson had a piece in the Washington Post, uh, guest columnist. They, you know, we think we do know how the government did play a role in this inflation. We spent all this money to try and so people wouldn't, you know, so we wouldn't have starvation and mass evictions during the, the lockdown. Government just pumped trillions of dollars in the economy. The, uh, then at, at a time, this, uh, the, the, the production is, is tightened because also because of the pandemic and people are bidding for goods. You know, it's an economic issue. If, if, if Biden gave that speech, he, he might find himself saying, you know, and that's why I'm scaling back, build, build back better, which he, he hasn't been willing to do. And, you know, if you again, if you look at this from not from the Republican standpoint, I mean, they're, look, they're out, they're out to thwart the guy or, or from the or from the progressive side, but just from the independent side or the mainstream moderate Democrats who want him to succeed. It looks like Joe Manchin is doing this guy a favor or trying to. And he's not he's not seeing it yet. And and that's. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying, John, is to get the emotion right, you have to get the policy right or, or it's going to be discordant. Well, two, 
two more things real quickly. I mean, the, the administration's first response to inflation was, well, it's going to be temporary. I mean, first they denied it even existed. And then they said, oh, it's there, but it's going to be temporary. And, you know, months later now, <clears throat> you know, Janet Yellen's saying basically we're going to be stuck with inflation through the end of 2022, maybe beyond that. So they didn't take it seriously enough up front. Um, they continued to push this idea that, you know, just spending more money, build back better. Uh, I've got this letter from 17 Nobel Prize winning economists that tell me that, you know, that say it's going to tamp down inflation. Um, that didn't sell with the American people. I mean, it's it's too abstract. What also uh, didn't happen, so, <laughs> But the other thing is, look, one of Biden's strengths when he took office was this idea, as Carl mentioned, that he was a he was, you know, maybe he's a gaffe machine. He says stupid stuff, you know, whatever. But but he's a regular guy and he cares about people like me. Pollsters ask the question, do you think the president cares about people like you? And Biden was very strong in that category, but he's not anymore. He's lost that. He's underwater on that metric. And, and it's all because of independence. They don't believe he cares about them anymore. And that's a that's a tough thing because it's one of those intangible qualities that a president has. And and that, you know, once he's sort of lost that trust with the American people on that issue, it's really hard to to win that back when they no longer think that he's that the president cares about you. Um, you know, it's it's a tough thing. It puts him in a tough spot, which is where he is now. Well, let's pull back a little from the week's news and look at some bigger trends that may inform the midterms as well as 2024. Uh, John, you've written this new book, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. This, this is an area you've been focusing on for a while. I've been doing a lot of focus groups and IOP's Harvard Youth Poll. What's unique about this generation that you're talking about? I think, John, before I talk about that, I, do, I don't want your listeners to believe that because I didn't like sp speak up or, or, or like comment to Carl and, 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 and Tom's perspective, I'm necessarily kind of agreeing with everything that they put up there. It's like, I think we, like we could, you know what I mean? We, we, we could easily spend a really great 15, 20 minutes. I think me countering some of the, some of the, uh, the points around perceived lack of empathy or the perceived lack of, of, uh, of, of who actually wants Biden to succeed in this country. Well, John, just give our listeners the highlights of how Tom and I are full of shit. We would, we <laughs> there are two points real quick. Well, first of which is, um, and maybe you misspoke, Carl, but when you said, basically you said moderate, you know, moderates want, want uh, Biden to succeed. And I hope that's not the only group that wants him to succeed, right? I hope progressives want him to succeed, conservatives, Republicans, and everybody want him to succeed. I think that's important, and I and I and I question the degree to which some actual members of uh, of uh, of the Republican Party and media want him to succeed as 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 president. And I do think that you could say a lot about perhaps the way in which he's been communicating. But Tom, I do think that his empathy and the degree to which he's connected to all Americans, especially the American worker, is his greatest strength. And uh, polls, you can ask, you know, there are certain things around poll questions that uh, people can use, but I, I know that is one of his greatest strengths, his empathy and his connection to people, specifically working class people. So I don't think 
he's abandoned uh, them or independent of necessarily abandoned him at this point. And I guess the last thing is, yes, perhaps inflation, uh, you know, uh, he should have listened to people like Larry Summers earlier. But the way you were, you were talking about inflation in terms of saying it wasn't going to be a big thing, it reminds me of where we were a year ago, you know, talking about COVID would be gone by Easter. So um, I'm just saying that this happens all the time and the perspective is required to um, to really, I think, understand and how to try to fix what's going on in Washington so Americans can kind of build some trust in uh, in the institutions. That's all. Well, I mean, talk about, you know, uh, back in the campaign, um, Gen Z, the you know generation that you're looking at in the book, uh, initially was in love with uh, Bernie Sanders, but uh, especially after uh, South Carolina, they those numbers really changed for Biden, and and young people were a, a huge base of support. They they seem to believe Biden. Talk about uh, how he resonated with that generation. He said, "I hear you." What he said was that despite the fact that he and Bernie Sanders came from very different wings of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders wasn't even a Democrat, Democratic Socialist, that uh, at the end of the day, he felt that the values of his supporters, which included uh, access to health care, which included access to a clean environment, um, uh, a living wage, et cetera, were not... Uh, were not at all unlike the values that he's been fighting for his entire career and that he hears them and he wants to begin a conversation about how to how to build trust, ultimately a relationship that would turn into support for that campaign. So uh, on, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, about a week or 10 days or so, I think after Super Tuesday, Sanders was, uh, was really not going to be... Um, a viable candidate much longer. He had not withdrawn from the campaign at that point, but Biden made that, that, um, that, uh, that, that olive branch. And it was, people responded very, very well to that. Um, and he continued that over the course of the summer through the convention and ultimately turned a 33 to 55% fave unfave among under thirties, 33 to 55 to 55, 32 by the end of the campaign, by listening, by engaging with a group, that you talked about did not like him. Did not like him at all. Sixty-seven percent didn't think favorably of him, but he turned it around, and um, and that's one of the reasons I believe that he is going to be visiting with more people and expanding his uh, his circle uh, and advisors and the way in which he campaigns. So, uh, talk about the priorities for Gen Z, and uh, I mean specifically, Biden was was. Speaking to those both in the campaign, he's he's continued to try and emphasize the environment and um, racial equity and things like that. Should we see those as uh, him appealing to the to the progressive wing of the party, or are those really, in a way, him trying to uh, speak to the to, to the Gen Z supporters? I think he's trying to talk to all citizens. I mean, who doesn't want you know racial equity and justice and a clean environment? You know, this is a generation um, Gen Z. It's it's really uh, the, the the premise for this book. I think is as I started spending time uh, in two thousand, specifically two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, with young people uh, a part of this generation. I felt like everything that I was hearing. Um, from 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 the media and from others was just wrong. 
we're dealing with a generation that's 70 million strong. That is the most educated, most diverse generation in the history of our country. These are people born in the mid-1990s through 2010 or so, 10 to 25-year-olds roughly. And, uh, and listen, every generation has, has had its, its, its trauma, its, its, its tough times. But I don't think there's any generation since the greatest in the last 75 years has dealt with more trauma than this generation in a short amount of time before their actual brain is even developed, which doesn't fully happen until the age of 25. They've had these traumas from 9-11 to school shootings to the financial crisis when tens of millions of people lost their homes, 80% of people lost 20% of their wealth. Um, that has tremendous effect on a young person. And we can see that in, in some of the mental health numbers today. Add to that the concerns about a climate and a democracy. And this is a, a generation that's grown up under tremendous stress without seeing, and we've talked about this before, the goodness and the hope of America when all of us can come together. We came together after 9-11. We came together after the Challenger. We came together in 1980 when the Russians beat the Americans. We haven't come together after January 6th. We haven't come together. So this generation has to now do things themselves. And rather than melting like the snowflakes that our sitting attorney general once called uh, once called young people, he called them sanctimonious, what do you call them? Sanctimonious, supercilious snowflakes. I think it's the opposite. I think rather than melting under these pressures, they've gotten harder, they've gotten tougher. It's like a piece of coal turning into a diamond and they're changing things, not just in this country, but in a couple hundred countries around the country, around the world. Voting in record numbers, participating in record numbers, and um, and forty uh, percent, by the way, of the electorate is this generation or their older brothers and sisters, millennials. Forty percent. They're all voting the baby boomers. And I'll tell you what: unless unless uh, the Republican Party begins to come to grips with that, they're going to have a very very difficult time winning national elections. And I think that also is connected to the voting rights stuff. Yeah. Let me let me add something there. This voting rights thing, I you can you can think a that it's not. It's it's if it's not unconstitutional, it certainly is a constitutional. The the founders envisioned states making these rules, not the federal government. You can think that it's a Democratic Party power grab that they're trying to, uh, you know, you can think it's trying to help incumbents, particularly Democratic incumbents in Democratic cities. You can think that it would codify procedures that you don't believe in, like quote ballot harvesting. You can have all of those objections, and and I. I have some of those concerns myself, but what what John Della Volpe shows in this book, and he he's got a section at the end called "To the Future." He's got what a dozen things here, John. Ten. When you ten, okay. Um, but number seven was Republican efforts to tighten voting procedures in the name of preventing voter fraud will alienate Zoomers even more, and that's something worth worth Republicans worth thinking about and worth evaluating. Uh, Les Francis has a column. He's a Democrat from California. Uh, John and John DeLavope and I know him, and uh, we know him less well. He 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 writes a column about this. Uh, you know, we're talking about race all the time, but this is cuts. A, this is generational. If you if you tighten some of these ID requirements and some of these uh, requirements about registration and uh, you know where you live, uh, these college students, you know, they're transient by nature. If you make it hard for college kids to vote. Uh, in places where they don't have cars and you don't have uh, voting facilities on campus. If you do some of these things, even if they're inadvertent, the Republicans uh, could pay a price for it. And that, that I wish the Democrats would quit saying this is an assault on democracy. I just wish they quit saying this crap. It's, it's 
demagogic. It's really not even honest intellectually. But more than that, it's ineffectual. It turns off anybody who doesn't already agree with you. What the Democrats ought to do is walk through some of these procedures specifically and point to things they don't like and try and get some Republican support. And the young voters is, to me, where that's where the nexus could be for some compromise. Um, now, that, that's the specific point about voting. Can, can I make a broader point? I don't mean to filibuster here. <laughs> filibuster is a very yeah. bad odor these days. Um, but about John's book itself, uh, uh, Fight, I'll repeat the title, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Uh, John went so far. He got Stockholm Syndrome so bad, he even misused a pronoun like they did. He, It should be it, but there. That, I love it. I love John went full native, but, but I'll tell you what I like about the book because I was a skeptic. Um, many people, my generation see these, the, you know, the failing of the zoomers and the millennials, the young ones, uh, namely, you know, know, excess sensitivity and a wokeness that's so goofy that it comes across as not unhinged from reality. And John turns, turns that around. He looks at it as you just heard from the other side. Uh, he's, paints a portrait of a generation of people who are politically committed and who, uh, to paraphrase Ted Kennedy, who John and I also knew, uh, who is when he eulogizing his brother, uh, a generation that sees wrongs and tries to right it, sees suffering and tries to heal it. And that's the portrait that comes out of this. And then John adds something to it and they're willing to fight to do it. So viewed that way, uh, their imperiousness to convention, their, to rank their audacity it reminds me not just of Obama, but it reminds me of baby boomers, my generation, when we were young. How much more progressive is this generation? Uh, I, I mean, back in 2000, I think the this age range, that earlier cohort voted pretty evenly uh, Republican and Democratic. Isn't that, isn't that right, John? Yeah. And that's mostly some millennials, but mostly Gen Xers in 1980. Yep. And then for 2020, it was... 60, roughly 60, 40, 60 for, for Biden. Yep. So Tom, um, you know, progressivism on campus is a frequent complaint of conservatives. Is this cohort, a cohort, a cohort that is winnable by the Republican party? Um, I mean, yes, I look, John's the expert on, on these numbers. And I think, you know, he will tell you if I'm not mistaken, John, I mean, this generation is the most progressive that we've ever seen, right. In terms of where they're, priorities are and and um how they how they view the world and you know there was this there's this myth that and i think it's a myth but again john you're going to you have to clean me up here that you know voters get more conservative as they grow older right over time but i'm i'm not sure that's actually borne out by the data and so i think republicans um they do need to address the the concerns of of the younger generation. I mean, they have to be talking in their language about their concerns. Now they can do it in different way and say, look, we don't need the government to be doing, you know, climate change. There's a free market system that is perfectly positioned and has the ability to to address all of these things just in a different way. So I think it's a I think it's a messaging thing. And there are plenty of I think young folks who um who would be receptive to that? But Republicans, I mean, they have to engage and they have to speak the language, and and I think uh, they haven't been doing a good enough job of that. I mean, Donald Trump's an anomaly, right? I mean, he really, in terms of how divisive he was, um, 
So, you know, I, if he runs again, obviously he's going to be fighting an uphill battle with, with this generation. Um, but if it's a, if it's somebody else, if it's Ron DeSantis, if it's Tim Scott, if it's Christy Noem, I think they would have a real opportunity, uh, to, to make inroads with this generation. If Biden continues to struggle, um, as he has with the, you know, with COVID, with inflation, um, and, uh, so there, there's opportunity there for sure. John, that really is the million dollar question, isn't it? Do cohorts uh, from 1820 to 24, h- how much do their initial political uh, preferences persist as as they age? I think Tom is right. It, uh, I think that it is largely a myth that you uh, age um, into conservatism. Baby boomers, especially white baby boomers, have always been conservative, um, uh, much more conservative than they like to believe. In fact, in the 60s, um, the baby boomers take a lot of credit for you know, the culture, but they were just re- they were actually responding to the culture created by the generation before them, the silent generation. The Beatles, Hendrix, most of the people at Woodstock weren't even part of the baby boomer generation. It wasn't until the draft, the, the support, for, support for the Vietnam War was highest among college students and younger Americans before the draft, until the draft, where we had a significant change in public opinion. And baby boomers have essentially kind of held that perspective over the last 50 years. Gen Xers have always been subtly center, center right, and we continue to see that in polling today. They are still that 50-50 group in many ways that they were in 1980. Millennials um, uh, share a lot of the values as as, as uh, Gen Zers. They're the ones living in suburbs, and they're the ones who in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and uh, Arizona voted plus 10 for Biden, and whereas the more progressive Gen Zers voted plus 20 for Biden in each of those states. Biden lost, by the way, Biden lost the vote of everybody over the age of 45 in those states. If not for millennials and Gen Z in those states, Trump is reelected. And it's because those Gen Zers and the mostly white baby boomers didn't really change their affiliation. They've continued to be consistent as they were when they were younger, which is, you know, uh, not a judgment, it's just what it is. But weren't you also seeing that split still being largely defined by education levels as well? I mean, aren't you looking at basically, you know, concentrations of young people in densely populated areas? So, you know, population density is a greater predictor of of how they were going to vote rather than, uh, you know, an education level were were largely a better predictor of how they were going to vote than age. That was a question more than a statement. Uh, <laughs> as, as equipment. Uh, you, no, no. I, I think I, I think I think edu- education level and age are two and clearly race, but those are the three greatest predictors of, of that. But we're seeing even among the uh, non-college younger people to be far more conservative. And I talk in the book about and and part of uh, some of these insights, frankly, came from. The capitalism survey that we did at Real Clear Opinion Research, where we found that the views to, towards capitalism of younger Republicans much look much more like younger Democrats than older Republicans. So overall, um, the generation is becoming more progressive. And by the way, it had been a point or two every year on a lot of the tracking questions that I track at Harvard, but it was Donald Trump that changed the dynamic where we, rather than seeing one or two points, it actually sped up the level of progressivism. And ironically, it's two 
70-something-year-olds, Donald Trump, I think, and Bernie Sanders, who has as much influence over this generation's views as as David Hogg and Darnella Frazier and some of the other activists that I profile in the book. So going into the midterms, I mean, we saw an increase in participation for, for Gen Z from 2018 to 2020. Do you expect to see an even higher participation rate um, or is it going to revert to the mean a little bit in 2022? So the mean, when we look at the mean from, from the mid 80s through 2014, so again, if we're including when baby boomers were younger, millennials and Gen Xers, the average participation in midterm election was only 16 or 17 percent. Only 16 or 17%. So it's a young voter issue, not a generational issue. Our generation, Gen Xers, 85% of us stay at home. I was going to be happy, I remember in 2018 at Harvard saying, if we could get this generation after all of the uh, after all of the um, uh, movement, after all the excitement around March for Lives, if we can get them to vote in the 20s, that's success. They doubled the 2014 turnout, and it was in the mid-30s. And it added two and a half points to the overall advantage for Democrats. Um, no group um, changed their turnout or their level of support for Democrats than younger people in 2018. Similar thing in 2020. I don't expect that necessarily to slow down. At this early stage, we see the lo- same level of uh, likely participation. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's 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 uh, it's it's good. Thirty five percent. It needs to be 70% as far as I'm concerned. If 70% of their great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers could participate to save uh, to save America from fascism in World War II, um, uh, you know, put their life on the line, I don't think it's too much to, to try to inspire 70% of younger people to participate in our elections. Can I, can I just ask, John? You know, Biden, obviously, his approval rating is, is down and sort of across the board, but- in some of these polls, and I'm just I'm 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 choosing the Quinnipiac poll because they actually break it out by by age cohorts, and this could be an outlier, right? That's the one general one that people have questioned whether that's an outlier or first, but yes, yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Because his approval rating among 18 to 34 year olds was only 24 percent. It was the lowest of any age cohort. 30 percent among 35 to 49, 40 percent among 50 to 64, 43 percent among uh, 65 plus. So, I mean. Is that being replicated in other surveys? And and how concerning is it for Biden that that he's losing? You know, it's it's one thing to lose Republicans. It's one thing to lose, you know, non-college educated whites, lose support among those groups. But when he starts losing, you know, we're seeing some erosion with Hispanics. We're seeing some erosion. How big of a deal is it for him? And how does he turn that around? So a couple of things. I do think what what's the overall approval number on that poll? That was like, Overall, was it, like 33. 30, yeah. it was a 33. Yeah. yeah. And so, so um, your average is probably, was it low 41. 40s? One. Okay. So if your average is 41, I would say in most of those other polls, Tom, his approval with younger people is going to be mid to high 40s, you know, um, and it would be similarly in this around the same level as, as older Americans. Um, I do think the Quinnipiac, is that's the only one I've seen where his approval among younger people was was that low. However, a uh, couple things. One thing is for eight years of the Obama presidency, I, I looked at this not long ago, his approval rating averaged 50% for his first term, and I think it averaged 51% for his second term, Obama's. Okay, so there's not a 
uh, one-to-one correlation between approval ratings and, and a difference between Democrat and Republican in an election cycle. So, um, uh, so we have to put that context. Having said that, it is a critically important voting block. And because there's not a long history of them voting in large numbers, the last two cycles they have, but because it's not a long history, what elected officials need to do is they need to both persuade, but also they need to motivate them and to mobilize them and to make sure that they're turning out in significant numbers. It was the the one-two punch in 18 and 20 that was so substantial, uh, such a substantial parts of the of the Biden and the Democratic coalition. Um, the one thing, Tom, I would uh, you know disagree with you on a little bit is that Republicans don't need to win the youth vote to be successful. They just need right. to lose it less badly than they Agreed. have the last couple of cycles, right? So George totally. Bush won forty five percent, right, um, in against Kerry. Uh, 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 Hillary Clinton only hit fifty five percent or so. Yeah, there was a third party. So it's a, just about you know where, where the margin is and being competitive um, and caring about it. And some of the advice that you gave, frankly is reasonable, right? In terms of addressing the issues and, and saying, okay, we understand climate change is an issue. We understand, you know, um, economic inequality is an issue. I have a better plan than the Democrats and actually debate those plans. That's the pathway really to, um, to be competitive. But if they don't do that and there is no other plan, it's, it's, it's not good news. I don't think longer term for the party. Carl. I wanted to go back in history uh, to to previous for when young people, the eighteen year old vote first ca- came on board. It's an issue that John Della Volpe and I have been talking about between the two of us since what I think two thousand six, John. I mean, or earlier. And you know, it, yeah, you were one of the very first to cover when we do these poll these these poll conferences on the youth poll. You were among the only people to cover it in the earliest days and give real voice to that. So I always appreciate that and your level of insight into this. Well, and you know, you guys may remember, uh, you may not, when, when the 18-year-old vote came, uh, it was 1972 was the first uh, election they were going to be allowed to vote. And uh, the Democratic nominee, George McGovern, had a young campaign manager. His name was Gary Hart, who who predicted, boldly predicted that the youth vote would would give would – give, uh, McGovern the win. And uh, what happened, of course, was that they 18-year-olds voted exactly the way their parents voted. Why, why wouldn't they? I mean, Nixon championed the thing. He held a signing ceremony for a constitutional amendment. That was something that never had happened before. A president doesn't have to sign the constitutional amendment. Uh, and he had some 18-year-old guys there, some, I think they were well-scrubbed Mormon kids probably, or Marines, you know, and, and the vote... His appearance on Laugh-In that really cinched the deal for him. But. Yeah, well, it didn't and it didn't change. And 76 was an anomalous year, but there was no real um, uh, trend, generational trend. But in 1980, this was the, the Democrats against it. All right, now we're running against this old warmonger. This time, this time the young voters will be with us. And there was a generational gap in 1980, and it was in Reagan's favor. Um, and there, there, and there were two things there that I focused on it that, that I've written about over the years. One, there, one was Reagan, the Repu- the old Republican, and this is like you know Bernie, and it's like Biden. You, you're never too old to be aspirational. Reagan was the aspirational candidate, not Jimmy Carter. And the other issue was inflation, and and this really crippled 
young people trying to start families. Inflation was high. Uh, the interest rate to, to, to try and combat it, the Fed raised interest rates. Interest rates, if you want to buy a new home, were 15, 16%. People don't remember this. It's a variable rate. It was, it was hard to start a family. It was hard to get a home. Now, I'm not blaming Carter for this, but the voters certainly did. And young voters preferred Reagan. And it took from 1980, John, correct me if I'm wrong, it, was, it, was until, it wasn't until 2004 when John Kerry's running that the youth vote that, that, that Gary Hart <laughs> predicted would go Democrats' way finally did, finally broke in a significant way. It's gotten, it's not a straight graph, but it's gotten more every year since then. And what I guess I'm wondering about 2002, and I'd love your thoughts on it, Tom and John Delavolpe, is again, what we have is inflation again, uh, for the first time since then as a campaign issue. And I'm curious, and it, and it still hurts young people more and people on fixed income more than it hurts uh, the baby boomers. And I guess my question is, will 2002, uh, 2022 tell us you have these young voters and, and they're more progressive and they have a series of issues that they're more progressive than the general public, equity, woke history, guns, LGBT issues, climate change, especially climate change. Will these issues outweigh inflation or will or, or will the young voters do what they did a generation ago, John De La Volpe, and say, okay, we can't have that. We're going to, we're going to, we, we don't want to reward an administration that doesn't understand inflation or a party that we perceive doesn't understand what we're going through. I guess that's a Can to I just clarify something? Because I, I think I, I might have just learned something here that. Yes, that sir. 2004, John Kerry, are you telling me that <laughs> Bill Clinton didn't win the youth vote against Bob Dole? Or George H.W. Bush? There was no difference. He did, but he didn't win it by a greater margin than Clinton won. Hmm. I guess what, what we're going back to, Tom, is is one of your original questions in terms of people developing their political values early and essentially staying with them, right? So younger people, baby boomers, were always more likely to be Republican as a reflection of what was happening in the country at that time. 72, 76, 1980, um, in 84, uh, overwhelmingly, especially uh, especially white baby boomers supportive of, uh, of Reagan. The Gen Xers, when my generation came of age, it was always a kind of a 50-50. The gap wasn't as strong, as, as large as it was uh, back in the Reagan days or as it is, is, is today. I think, you know, 1996 was probably an outlier time when um, there was, I think Clinton likely won every age group and every demographic group by significant margins. There probably was no great outlier. I don't have that, those figures, uh, memorized or in front of me kind of at this point, right? I think your generation went for Ross Perot, John. <laughs> yeah, Bill Clinton, there was a there was a spike. There was a spike in the youth vote in 92 in terms of participation, but Ross Perot actually was one of the reasons why, right? There was a third candidate who brought um, other kind of more disaffected people kind of into that, into that, into that process. Um, yeah, you know, listen, it, it, inflation is important. It's, it's, it, it, it certainly, uh, strikes uh, is, is more of a stressor for folks who, who have uh, less money, expendable money, et cetera. Um, it's an important issue, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty hot job market, I think, for, for younger people right now in terms of op economic opportunities. And that um, is also something 
that um, will hopefully continue to stay hot. And it's just another part of the economic picture I think younger people will be considering because, yes, they uh, they do care about justice, but they also care about affording a place to live in the town in which they're raised, et cetera. Well, let's wrap this up, John, and, and kind of just to crystallize it, if you're a candidate going for 2022 and you want to target uh, the, this younger demographic, you know, what are the top three issues that you have to be able to have to speak to? Same, It's the same issues that every other American cares about. Access to health care, access to an economy that works for people, better schools and education, uh, climate uh, racial justice; those are the four or five key factors. It's a, it's it's not true at all that young people are just care about the environment. They care about it perhaps more than other people. But every poll that I've done, it's typically COVID, healthcare, economy, uh, followed by followed by followed by climate. But what I would say is, it's not a you know, should I make this little effort to try to reach out to these young people? We're dealing with forty percent of the electorate. There will be more people of this generation voting than baby boomers, so so uh, so people have to get serious about this topic and get serious about uh, attracting them, or they're going to be out of business. There are forty percent of the vote is millennial or Gen Z, and they've been very very clear. Sixty percent of them vote for Democrats. So, like you know, my message is to Democrats: understand that and, and motivate them. And my my message is to Republicans. You know, you might be able to to try to, you know, block a piece of voting rights legislation or whatever. That's only gets you so far. You need to get serious about the issues that the 40 percent of Americans care about. Generational placement is not going to be kind. It's not going to be kind to anyone who doesn't uh, who, who doesn't take these issues seriously. Tom, you want to have the last word on that? No, I think that was actually a perfect ending right there. All right. Well, we will leave it there for today. The book is is great. It's Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Uh, it's a really interesting read. I actually found the discussion of uh, mental health concerns really, really concerning for this generation. It's it's something that that's something that we just didn't even get to talk that much about. But it's, it's a book worth reading and, and thinking about for several years. So I just want to thank my guests, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and John Della Volpe. As always, we encourage you to read at least one thing from someone you disagree with. You can find a broad range of perspectives at realclearpolitics.com. And of course, be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. We have new episodes on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and our weekly news roundup on Friday. Until next time, for the Real Clear Politics Takeaway, I'm John Sorensen.